At the age of 15, he had already learned silence. From a child's history of Muhadib by the Princess Irulan. Welcome to Reading Dune, a podcast where we read Dune by Frank Herbert and talk about it. If you're a friend or a first-time reader, this podcast is for you. My name is Caleb Pauls. And I'm Evan Diaz. And together, we're going to read some Dune. Yeah, we are. Yes, we are, Evan. Yeah, we are. So, yes, we are. We're doing it right now. We're reading Dune. And hopefully, you listening, you get your book out, or if you're driving... You keep your eyes solely focused on the road. How do I start this segment, Evan? I'm I'm dying here. Uh, we want to talk about the favorite part of Dune. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So we've asked uh, people like you in our little tribe of people to send into us audio or video or even like a small little email to readingdune@gmail.com that tells us what your favorite part of Dune is. So then we can put it on the show because this show isn't just about me and Evan. It's about all of us. Um, And so this is an email I got from Jacob Johnson. He says, hello, Caleb and Evan. I'm Jacob Johnson from Campbellsville, Kentucky. I had a hard time choosing my favorite part of the book as is there's so much great material in it. My favorite part would have to be when Paul and Jessica escape from the Harkonnens. Getting to see what Jet what Jessica is capable of and a taste of what Paul is capable of was such an excellent scene in the book. Anyways, I really enjoy your podcast and I look forward to it every week. Stay spicy, friends. Stay spicy, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. That's awesome. Actually, I know a guy named Jacob Johnson. I was like, wait a minute. And then I was like, no, never mind. Wow. I mean, maybe you could tell your friend Jacob Johnson to listen to this show so they can possibly hear about other Jacob Johnson. Wow. If there's anyone else named Jacob Johnson, send us an email. Unless, uh... <laughs> yeah, we want to we hear from you. So hit us, hit us up with an email, readingdude.gmail.com. Maybe some audio, maybe some video, put you on the show. It's all good. The audio, the audio was cool. That last audio thing that we did, that was yeah. like getting to like hear someone's voice and that little, that little effecty do that you did there, Caleb. That was, I, that was primo. That was cool. Yeah, yeah if you're watching on YouTube, uh, yeah. pull the old After Effects up. If you can watch it on the YouTubes, Caleb put some extra, some razzle-dazzle. And I know we're only already like three minutes into this, but I see people watching on YouTube that are not subscribed. If you're coming to this point, please subscribe. Hit that little button. Just just nice. It makes me feel tingly good inside. Like when the spice hits just right. <laughs> Wow, that. it's okay. We're we don't even know what spice really even does yet at this point in time. We just know that it's in the air and it's making Paul do weird things. Yeah, it does stuff. That's what I know. Um. All right. So, uh, let's hit this quote. What do you think of the quote? It was a small one today. I have nothing on this quote. I have no. <laughs> this this quote escaped me, Caleb. Well, maybe now looking back over the chapter, you can kind of see it's kind of it's influence. Yeah. Yeah, sure. What do you think this silence has to do with the desert? Oh. Evan's eyes get real big. Well, there's a lot of in this chapter, there's a lot of sounds. And so that would that would make silence important because you have to be aware of all the little things, all the little sounds when that 
scary abrasive hiss comes along. You got to know that it's time to run, you know? Man, I'm tired just thinking about running, especially in sand. No less. We're going to do a lot of that in this chapter. For real. Do you think... Do you think Paul learned about silence in Caledon or in on Arrakis? Because um, this quote's pulling from the future. He's been talking about it. Maybe, maybe he learned about like the theory on Caledon, but he put it to practice on Arrakis. Yeah, he definitely puts it to practice. All right, so this is a Paul and Jessica chapter. Aren't you excited? Yeah. I'm so I was so excited when I was like, yes, it's back to Paul. I was waiting for it to be like how it and I was going to roll my eyes and be like, OK, <laughs> here we are again. But no, we get we get a Paul and Jessica in the middle of the storm. Yes. OK, so we last left Paul and Jessica as they dive into the storm, into this monstrosity that they thought everyone in the Imperium thought just kills you, rips metal apart and rips flesh from bone which it probably does if you're like on the like on the sand at the very bottom but they're riding on top of it yeah where the dust and mostly it's like dust and wind is still like abrasive and corrosive or whatever but it's like kind of more settled up at the top yeah they're kind of like uh, surfing it like yeah. in this thing almost and and paul is white knuckling it to to hold on to keep it steady and he's slowly finding the rhythms of the storm. And and Jessica's going to say that, like, they've been in this for about four hours of him learning these rhythms of the storm. Where is a vortex? Where is a big blot of sand? Like, how how is the storm kind of moving and shaping? And he's he's learning that, that force of nature. Mm. And he learns that in order to like get out of this, he has to find a vortex to lift them out. Yeah, the right vortex. Just the right one. And so he wants to use it like a bird would use like a hot air current to lift it higher and higher until he's out. And he's he's now beginning to see this, the power of the storm is diminishing, but the storm continues to shake them. And he, he starts to feel a vortex rattle the ship where he's at. And without fear, he just banks hard left into the vortex. As he does that, it's Jessica screams, Paul. <laughs> and if you can see him like it's like a tornado. It's like catching it and going around and around like a geyser just shoots them out. So we went from like a sorry, my, my videography brain is going hardcore here. So you get the in in the Thopter shot, he like yanks it, you he see pan Jessica's face through no, you get a mid shot of a Thopter going round and round, and then like a big wide shot of the whole storm. And then you see this like boop. Yeah. This little this little thopter just goes uh flying out. Right. I picture I also picture this moment with Jessica is like when you're driving a car with your mom and you gotta like cut somebody off or like you gotta like get over to the next lane or something. <laughs> and your mom is like, What are you doing? She, she like freaks out. She's grabbing the oh shit handle, like, what are you doing? She's stomping the floor. Like, no way, hit the brakes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what happens um, <laughs> but frank says that um they shoot them out like a chip on a geyser and when i read it the first time it was like a chip on a geyser i have no idea what that means i just thought of like a like a 
Dorito chip. <laughs> this pop. This pops up. And so they're out of the storm now. And Jessica whispers to herself, we're out of it. Paul turned the craft away from the dust in a swooping rhythm while he scanned the night sky. And then he gives a little joke here. We've given them the slip. It's like that, that break of humor. Yep. Because right before they entered the storm, they were like, ah, we need to give the Harkonnens the slip. Well, that will do it. <laughs> Paul looks back down at the storm below them, and he sees it like a, the dying storm looks like a, a dry river on the moonlit desert. Mm. Which I think is really an interesting way to look at it. Jessica feels her heart pounding. She forced herself herself to calmness, looking at the diminished storm. Her time senses said they'd been riding within the compounded of elemental forces almost four hours, but part of her mind computed the passage as a lifetime. She felt reborn. It was like the litany, she thought. We faced it. We did not resist. The storm passed through us and around us, and it's gone. But we remain. And we we talked about this in the the chapter two chapters ago. Where we talked about this, whereas the the storm is almost a representation of the litany, yeah, letting the fear pass through you. And it's when you do something that you are incredibly scared of, you almost come out of uh, out of that experience another person, right? And I feel like this moment for Jessica. It's almost like her whole life is training. Her whole life has been like some strange preparation for what's now starting to unfold. And this moment with her in the storm, she felt reborn because it was the first time she had to physically experience the litany of fear in action. You know? Like it happened to her, you know, it's like all she has all this theory and like book smarts kind of that, you know, like that, that type of wisdom. And now it's like she has to apply it in real life for the for the first time, possibly, you know, like to this extreme. That was like the first time she actually like put it into yes. real practice. Yes, this is 100 percent like a representation, symbolic representation of the litany, the storm itself. You can't get anything more scary at this point. Right. And and this is just like one part of the desert and how the desert works. And as they enter into the desert, like they are now, you really, this is the wilderness, 100% for them. This is the, the trials and tribulations and they will be tested like they've never been tested before. Like they've always been the one to, there's this idea later in the chapter about mercy and rest and how nature doesn't have those components to it, at least on Arrakis. Yeah. In order to live, you have to keep going and to survive and to continue to face your fear over and over and over and over again. Gosh. And that experience is going to create a, like not only a hardened person, but a completely different person. Yeah. Um, That's some good juice. Yeah. We're about to hit that again. So 
Yeah, that's the the Whitney against fear. Uh, fear is the mind killer. So um, Paul is so they're now out of the storm, and Paul's trying to fly the ornithopter, and he starts to understand there's a problem with the wing, and there's also um, a hole in the thopter. Right. And this is all the result of sand damage. Uh, he felt the grating injured flight through his hands on the controls. They were out of the storm, but still not out of full view of his prescient vision. Because right when they, before they entered the thopter, he went into like a gray space. Like, it's like those valleys in his prescient vision where he doesn't see. And he knows there are some options here where he doesn't make out the other side so yeah he hasn't crossed into where he can see again yet they had escaped and paul sensed himself trembling on the verge of a revelation he shivers and he's probably about to have that same reborn experience like going through his first prescient dark space right um and coming out the other other side is going to be it's going to give him a new sense of probably boldness, but also fear involved right? of all the stuff you have to do. The sensation was magnetic and terrifying. He found himself caught on the question of what caused this trembling awareness. Part of it, he felt, was a spice-saturated diet of arrakis. But he thought part of it could be the litany, as the way the words had a power of their own. Mm. Uh, I shall not fear. Cause and effect. He was alive despite malignant forces, and he felt himself poised on the brink of self-awareness that could not have been without the litany's magic. Words from the Orange Catholic Bible rang through, through his memory. What senses do we lack that we cannot see or hear another world all around us? I don't know. It's interesting because it's like the words have a power of their own. And, you know, in in this story in this universe they they may actually have some kind of magical power of their own but there's something about saying something until you believe it mm. that is i don't, I don't want to get too like like weirdo weirdo on <laughs> the secret the power of the secret or right. some yeah like, there's something about you know, saying something until you believe it, that's a kind of magic that we have access to in the real world, you know, like, um, especially something like the litany against fear. If you like take those words to heart and really like say it until you believe it, when you get into that moment of real paralyzing fear that happens in life and you say those words, they can help you like emotionally, <laughs> come down to like a level space you know it's like you I mean, yeah you've trained you've trained your brain to go back to this right and, and you see a lot of that in the, in the Bene Gesserit and how they uh they use like you see there we'll see later here like the the Bindu uh, muscle training or how they use their oxygen levels or even like the control in their muscles um so it would make sense that like they also have this power with words mm -hmm. and how they use their words very, very carefully. Right. It's like the voice, but you're using it on yourself. Ooh, that's even more powerful. Ah, oh, dude. <laughs> 
Because if yeah, if you can if you can control yourself, you can control just about everything else in the universe. Right. I think that's a Bene Gesserit axiom or something like that. Yeah, so, and we're gonna so, run into a moment where, you know, if you could, if if Paul could have just like talked himself down a little bit, um, things would have gone more smoothly. Like later later on in this chapter. So yes, a good thing to keep in mind, I guess, as we go forward on this. Right, so they're still in the air. Aft is damaged, and they see that there are rocks nearby, which is a great sign because they need to stay on the rocks as much as possible. Yeah. So they so Paul decides the best course of action is to crash land the puppy. Um, he says, "We'll set us down near those rocks. Check your safety harness, Mom." <laughs> she obeys, thinking we have water and still suits. If we can find food. We can survive a long, t- a long time in this desert. Fremen live here. What they can do, we can do. So Paul is still eyeing his descent here. He says, run for the rocks. The instant we're stopped, I'll take it. Before he fell silent, then nodded. Worms. He corrects her. Our friends, the worms. <laughs> They'll get the stop there. There'll be no evidence of where we landed. So he starts to take it lower and lower, and he starts now grazing the tops of sand dunes. As he's trying to kill the speed. Paul warns, brace yourself. He pulls back on the wing brakes gently at first, then harder and harder. He felt them cup the air, their aspect ratio dropping faster and faster. Wind screamed through the lapped converts and primaries of the Wings leaves. Abruptly, with only the faintest lurch of warning, the left wing, weakened by the storm, twisted upward and in the slamming the side of the thopter. Swack! The craft skidded across a dune top, twisting to the left. It tumbled down the opposite face to bury its nose in the next dune. So, they've crash landed. Paul grabs, opens the door, grabs the pack. Paul, Paul and Jessica make it out. And then he yells, run! He pointed up to the dune face and beyond it, where they could see a rock tower undercut by the sand glass winds. Jessica leaped off the thopter and ran, scrambling and sliding up the dune. She heard Paul's panting progress behind them. They came out on a sand ridge that curved away towards the rocks. Follow the ridge, Paul ordered. It'll be faster. So now they're running on sand to the to this rock outcropping a new sound began to impress itself on them <laughs> a muted whisper a hissing an abrasive slithering worm paul said it grew louder faster paul gasped now paul was running behind his mom so they're like sprinting as fast as they can towards this thing the first rock shingle, like a beach slanting from the sand, lay no more than 10 meters ahead. They heard metal crunch shatter behind them. Paul shifted his pack to his right arm, holding it by the straps. It slapped his side as he ran. He took his mother's arm with his other hand. They scrambled up, up to the rock. Breath came dry, and they gasped in their throats. I can't run any farther, Jessica panted. Paul stopped. Pressed her into the gut of the rock, turned and looked down into the desert. A mound in motion ran parallel to the rock island. Moonlit ripples 
sand waves, a cresting burrow almost level with Paul's eyes at the distance of about a kilometer. We have our worm. Where the worm had been, there was no sign of the aircraft. The burrowed mound moved outward into the desert and coursed back across its own path as if questing. It's bigger than a guild spaceship, Paul whispered. That's freaky. Just watching this like mound of sand kind of like looking for you. And it's like gigantic. Yeah. The size of a uh, guild spaceship. Is that what he said? Yeah. So the things that brought them down. Um, it's like, yeah, it's like a skyscraper. Probably bigger than that. That's insane. Because there were like, there were several ships inside that that guild ship right yeah i think they're talking about the little ones because there are big big highliners that carry thousands of ships okay so i think they're thinking about like a smaller ship in there gotcha um but still they don't actually see the worm at this point they only see the displaced sand of the cresting worm right and they just be a worm when the spice factory got Again? We just saw its mouth. Okay. So to this point, we have not actually seen a full worm up close. We've only seen parts of it. Um, but this is where the first time we see the, like the, its scope, how big they could be. Right. And Paul even whispers, I was told worms grew large in the deep desert, but I didn't realize how big. And that's where Jessica also says, nor I. Like, this is something no one in the Imperium knows, how big these things actually are. Right. And do you think this is, like, a big worm, like a properly big worm? Or is it just, like, the biggest one they've seen so far? I think it's the biggest one they've seen so far. I don't want to give anything away. That's, that's crazy! Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah, we're, I think every time we'll see a worm, we'll get closer and closer to actually seeing one. Oh my gosh um yeah and the imperium doesn't know about how big worms are because the person that would tell them is kinds and kinds isn't going to tell them anything right or the guild with their satellites but they're keeping it hush hush anything that happens below the northern pole basically they're like not talking about right because it would it would not benefit them to talk about it um so, yeah, they need everything. They know what's up, but they're not going to say anything. Yeah. Um, the worm itself. Oof. Paul took a deep breath, looked up from the moon-frosted escarpment, and quoted from the Kitab al-Ibar, travel by night and rest in black shade throughout the day. He looked at his mother. We still have a few more hours of night. Can you go on? Now, I want to stop by the, hit this quote real fast, okay. by the Kitab uh, Al-Ibar, right? So that is, um, in the Dune world, that is the Fremen book that is in the pack that is a religious history and manual. Oh, okay. So he quotes it, probably not have read it, but or maybe glanced at it. It's probably like the first or third rule you know what i mean travel by night went on our guest actually a real book what yeah now i'm gonna butcher how we say this um 
but it is written by a man named Ibn Khaladin, who lived in the uh, mid lived in the thirteen hundred uh, one thousand three hundred thirty two, and he died in one thousand four hundred and six. He was an Arab. He was an Arab scholar during the peak of the Eastern expansion. But in in these um, the Arab Empire, what the book is is it's a history and philosophy manual of all of the Eastern powers and the Eastern empires. Interesting. Um, so when the Middle Ages he were happening in Europe the East and the Middle East were thriving as well as North Africa. And so this is um, in Islamic history up to that point, as well as a current history. So that, well, I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast before, if you picked this up, but there are definitely um, Islamic roots in the Fremen. Right. Um, it's, it's kind of an obvious, like, uh, illusion there. Yeah, because the, the Fremen is a Zen Sunni wanderer, so it's a mix of the Zen religion and the Sunni the Sunni religion. Mm. Um, so it's very Eastern in thought and how they work with things. It's not the Western, um, you know, three points. It's the Eastern, how do I experience nature around me? Yeah. Paul and Jessica are basically, have, they have to learn a new culture completely now yeah and learning how to do this and so he's just funny that he quotes that saying like all right first first rule of fight club is travel by night and rest in the black shade because when the sun comes up that's going to roast most of your water and you want to keep that in your body right he's like ridding himself of stranger thinking yes so paul asked if jessica can keep going which again she just said i must stop running i can't run any further and to be honest, they've kind of been going nonstop ever since they were drugged. Right. In Arakane. So it's a decent question. But there is still, uh, the sun hasn't up yet, and therefore you can't stop. You must always keep going. She pushed herself away from the rock, feeling her strength return. Which direction? Where this ridge leads, he pointed. Deep into the desert, she said. The Fremen Desert, Paul whispered. And he paused. Shaken by the remembered high-relief imagery of a prescient vision he'd experienced on Caladan. It's like a deja vu moment. But like what we all wish slash dream that our deja vu actually was. (laughs) Come on, yes. (laughs) He had seen this desert, but the set of the vision had been subtly different. Like an optical image that had disappeared into his consciousness and been absorbed by a memory and now failed a perfect registry when the object projected itself onto the real scene. The vision appeared to have shifted and approached him from a different angle while he remained motionless. On his vision in Caladan, Idaho was in this vision. But now, Idaho is dead. So these visions that he has of the future aren't 100% accurate. Right. It's like visions of a future. Correct. So there's something that happened in there that caused Idaho to die. Was it his action 
Was it somebody other? Was somebody else's action? Yeah, it could have been Idaho's action. Could have been Idaho's action. Something out of his control. Could have been the Harkonnens that like, or Piter put a watch on Idaho, or maybe Paul and Jessica lingered too much instead of just keep going. There's lots of unknown possibilities that could happen, and I think this kind of just reinforces in Paul's brain that there are lots of choices to take and. If he makes the right ones, everyone he loves comes out comes out alive. Right. So there's just extra responsibility. Jessica, mistaking his his hesitation, asks him, "Do you see where to go?" And I love that he's no, but we go anyway. <laughs> Sometimes when you don't know which way to go or you don't have a plan, the best thing you can do is just keep moving. Uh, yeah, that's that. <laughs> That's big, dude. That's that's life. That's some good life juice right there. It's like, you don't know where to go? Keep going. Just keep moving. So then they start to make their way through this rock labyrinth caverns. They're climbing over rocks. They're making sure they don't hit their heads. And they don't they only speak when completely necessary. Makes um, sense. They're, right. They're, they're just kind of going through this. She, he, Jessica hears Paul pulling at this still suit tube. Sip and sipped her own reclaimed water. It tasted brackish, and she remembers the waters of Caladan. A tall fountain enclosed a curved sky, such a rich richness of moisture that it hadn't been noticed for itself, only for its shape, or its reflection, or its sound. As she stopped beside the water, to stop, she thought to rest. Truly rest. It occurred to her that the mercy was the ability to stop, if only for a moment. There was no mercy where there could be no stopping. Um, there's this idea of... She didn't know she was going to go to Arrakis. She was probably on Caladan having stressful days, worrying about so many things. How many times can we actually enjoy our times of peace and rest when they're right in front of us instead of quickly wishing them away or moving on to something else. I don't know, something in my own life. Like when I'm not busy, it's okay to not be busy. Just use that time because there will be another time when you're running in the desert. Right. And I feel like to remember and that we're getting real philosophical this episode. I like it. The desert does that in like the difficult parts of life that like, A, what we said before, you got to keep going. But then anytime you can just like stop and have a breather, that's where your rest is. Like that's where you can, that's, they don't come very often and they're not very long, but like you got to remember to like actually take those moments of mercy as Jessica calls it, that like little bit of a stop. They're just like, okay, I can do this. And then you just like keep going, you know? Yes. Um, so they, they take one of those moments we just talked about as they go to the very top of this peak. Um, they keep moving until they make the, basically the top of the rock. The, and, um, and at the peak, they can see open sand in front of them. I mean, they're probably on an island. It's all around them. Uh, and they find that the sand distance they need to travel is about three to four kilometers. He, being Paul, was pointing left, and she 
being Jessica, looked along his arm and see they stood atop a cliff with a desert stretched out like a static ocean some 200 meters below them. It lay there, full of moon-slivered waves, shadows of angles that lapse into curves, and in the distance, lifted to the misted gray blur of another escarpment. Open desert, she said. A wide place to cross, Paul said. And his voice was muffled by the filter trap across his face. So they have to make it through this open desert. And uh, Evan, what what's in the open desert? Worms. Worms. So at that thought, Jessica says, uh, shall we rest and eat? She, she lays down or probably sits down. Um, she sank to the rock beside him. She felt Paul turn as she settled herself. And while he was going through the pack, here, he says, he hands her, he, his hands felt dry against hers as he pressed two energy capsules into her palm. She swallowed them with a grudgingly spit of water from her still suit tube. Drink all your water, Paul said. Axiom, the best place to conserve your water is in your body. It keeps your energy up. You're stronger. Trust your still suit. Where did he get that one from? Probably in the same book. It was right under them. Travel by night. Drink all your water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, it doesn't do any good sludging around in your thigh pads. Like, yeah. And like Jessica, when, when Jessica first put the, had the still suit on, she was talking about how like she hadn't drank any of her water. So the suit was all slimy. Don't like that. You know, yeah. And besides, when you're running in the desert, you need the water in you to like go to your cells and make sure you're running. Right. All good. Yeah, you need that in you. I think she's she's hesitant to drink it because that would be embracing the complete lifestyle of the desert. Yeah. I think there's still this hesitation that like, once I do this, there's no coming back. Yeah, but also on a much more surface level, probably doesn't taste really freaking good. You know, like it's not like a nice ice cold <laughs> glass of water. It's like nasty... <laughs> purified body water Blech. You know? Ew. brackish is what frank herbert says yeah, what the heck is brackish uh-huh. you gonna google it or are you gonna make me google it uh i guess i'll google it the reading dune podcast brought to you by dictionary.com <laughs> that's not a real sponsorship we have zero sponsorships people but if you want to sponsor, you can email us at readingdude at gmail.com. Yes, please do. Please do. All the sponsors listening, you're <laughs> looking for sponsoring. Brackish. Brackish. Uh, ooh. Ooh. Having that good. Having a slightly salty or briny flavor. Distasteful. Unpleasant. Like a gross. You're drinking salty, like back sweat. <laughs> Legitimately back sweat. Yes. <laughs> Nasty. Uh, yeah, we're gonna about to get into um the Fremen and how they smell. You're gonna you're gonna love it. Can't wait. So um what they do to get their mind of how awful the tasting water is, is they turn to a Gurney Howitt quote. <laughs> 
Your dude, Gurney, the minstrel warrior. Uh, Jessica says, better a dry morsel and their quietness there within than a house full of sacrifice and strife. Jessica repeated the words to Paul. That was Gurney. He said, I guess like a little bit of humor or like in these tense moments of they, they're having son dot or son mother moments. And I'm like, ah, remember the good old days. That's a gurney. That's a gurney. This is where Paul, as their like gurney discussion kind of dies down. Paul looks over at Jessica and asks her, uh, how do you feel? He doesn't know quite how to word this. She recognized that his question was directed at her pregnancy. And Jessica says, your sister won't be born for many months yet. I still feel physically adequate. Immediately, she thinks to herself, how stiffly formal I speak to my own son. Then, because it was the Bene Gesserit way to seek out answers from within, to such an oddity, she searched and found the source of her formality. I'm afraid of my son. I fear his strangeness. I fear what he may see ahead of us, what he may tell me. Paul pulls the hood down over his eyes and listens to the bug-hustling sound of the night. They're still on the top of this peak. His lungs were charred with his own silence. His nose itched. He rubbed it, removed the filter, and grew conscious of the rich smell cinnamon. There's melange spice nearby, he said. So then they realize that they can't stay here forever and dawn is coming soon. So it's time to get the move on again. Paul says that there's a way to get safely across that open sand. The Fremen do it. And Jessica reminds him about the worms. And Paul says, if we were to plant a thumper from our Frem kit back in the rocks there, Paul said, it'd keep the worm occupied for a time. She glanced at the stretch and the moonlit distance between them and the other escarpment. Four kilometers worth of time? Perhaps. And if we cross there making only natural sounds, the kind that doesn't attract worms. Paul studied the open desert, questing in his prescient memory, probing the mysterious allusions to thumpers and maker hooks in the Fremkit manual that had come with their escape pack. He found it odd that all he sensed was pervasive terror at the thought of the worms. He knew as though it lay just at the edge of his awareness that the worms were supposed to be respected and not feared if, if. So, Evan, what do, uh, what do maker hooks do? I don't know. You have no guesses? No. <laughs> yeah, you have any guesses? No. Okay, well, we'll figure Yeah, We'll learn more about that later. <laughs> That's the only thing we don't know about, about. Oh, my gosh. So Jessica then says um, that they have to make sounds without rhythm. They have to walk without rhythm. And Paul's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we broke our steps, the sand itself must shift down at different times, and worms can't investigate every sound. We should try it fully before we – we should be rested before we try it. Yeah. Don't – yeah, don't try to do this right now. Hmm. Um. So Jessica's like, okay, so where should we camp? And Paul looks down and says, well, we should probably start down right kind of near the base so we can start right away. Right. But the problem is. So are they climbing down like a, like a, 
like a hole between the rocks or are they going down more like a cliff right on the edge of the open desert? Um, well, Frank says Fisher. So that would be like, um, like a Canyon sort of like it's cut down. So they want to, they'd cut down into where the open sand is so they can just take out from there. Okay, cool. I was, I was, I, that's what I was picturing, but then, like, as we were reading it again, I was like, wait, are they going down a cliff face or, like, a canyony like, hole? And they're probably, yeah, they're probably going, like, a, there's probably multiple layers to get down, to which we're going to see. Um, and Jessica thinks, well, this would be easy if we just had suspensers. We just had, like, what the Baron had. Yeah, we'll just drop down. But who knows? Maybe suspensers attract worms here. Every other technology does, so. Yeah. Can't wear a shield. Can't see anything. Um, so Paul says, well, we can't, we'll start to climb down, but he says, we'll, we'll, we'll ride the sand down all the way to the bottom. Um, sure. <laughs> sure, yeah, let's try that. Sounds easy. Sounds, so, sounds like a good move. <laughs> Tested surface one foot. He tested, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll just slide down this. We can slide down, he says. I'll go first. Wait until you hear me stop. Careful, she said. He stepped onto the slope and slid and slipped down its soft surface onto almost a level floor of packed sand. The place was deep within the rock walls. There then came the sound of sand sliding behind him. He tried to see up the slope in the darkness and was almost knocked over by the cascade. It trailed away to silence. Mother, he said. There was no answer. Mother. He dropped the pack, hurled himself up the slope, scrambling, digging, throwing sand like a wild man. Mother, he gasped. Mother, where are you? So I guess what happened right there is is as he was uh, sliding down, he created an avalanche that pulled her down too. And he put his pack down to go digging after her. Um, but she's covered in sand at this point in time. She's been, and she's completely buried. But he thinks that he must remain calm and work this out carefully. She won't smother immediately. She'll compose herself in bindu suspension to produce her oxygen. She knows I'll dig for her. Ah, one Ten- tense. Okay, man, is this part had to be tense? <laughs> yeah, so tense. <laughs> so she's doing this. Bene Gesserit witch stuff where she slows her oxygen breathing and just like shuts everything down. Um, and Paul's about to do the same thing. In the Bene Gesserit way she had taught him, Paul stilled his savage beating of his heart, set his mind into a blank slate upon the past few moments he could write themselves. Every partial shift and twist of the slide replayed itself in his memory, moving with an interior stateliness that contrasted with the fractional second of real time required for the total recall. So he instantly meant at Kuzwa Tratarak, puts it together. Where is she? And he starts to dig. A piece of fabric came under his hand. She followed it, found an arm. Gently traced the arm and exposed her face. Do you hear me? He whispered. Nothing. He dug faster, freed her shoulders. She was limp beneath his hands, but he detected a slow heartbeat. She's in the bindu suspension, he told himself. He cleared the sand away to her waist, draped her arms over her shoulders, and pulled on the downslope, slowly at first, then dragging her feet as he could, feeling the sand give way above. Faster and faster he pulled her, because another sand avalanche is heading his way. 
He was out on the hard-packed floor of the fissure, then swinging her to his shoulder, ranking into a staggering run as the entire sand slope came down with a large hiss that echoed and was magnified within the rock walls. He then slowly lowers her down and utters the word to bring her out of the bindu suspension. She awakens slowly, taking a deeper and deeper breaths. I knew you'd find me, she whispered. He looked back up the figure. And this is where he's like, a, oh, I'm such an idiot. It might have been kinder if I hadn't. Paul, but you just saved my life. Why would you say such a thing? I lost the pack, he said. It's buried under 100 tons of sand, at least. Looking back on this chapter, I don't think it's buried under 100 tons of sand. I think it's because they got it out rather fast. He's just right. being dramatic at this point. Can he? Is, is it possible for him to be dramatic? I think so. Okay, good to know. I don't. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like there's still some 15 year old in here somewhere. Like, oh, this next sentence, right? Um, and so Jessica says, "Everything you've lost it all." He says, "The spare water, the still tent, everything that counts." He touches the pocket. I still have a pair of compass. He fumbled at his waist set. Ooh, a knife, binoculars. We can have a good look around the place we're going to die. <laughs> In that instance, the sun lifted <laughs> yeah, above the horizon. Yeah. Okay, he could definitely be dramatic. <laughs> yeah, that's the point where he like loses it all. He like he's so calm and knows the future. But he's like, at least I have binoculars. Of course, humor to die. <laughs> but as soon as he says that, like death literally shows up because the sun starts to creep up. You hear a chorus of birds come from around you. Yikes! But Jessica had eyes only for the despair in Paul's face. She edged her voice with scorn and said, Is this the way you were taught? Scold, scolding him in his dramatic flares. Mm-hmm. He's like, Don't you understand? Everything we need to survive in this place is under that sand. She's like, You found me. Like, together, we'll figure this out. This is what the, you know, the good mom does. It's the, especially in this environment, everything looks like you're going to die. But no, don't stop. Don't give up. There's always a way out. Keep moving forward. The moment you stop is the moment you die. No matter what you have, just keep moving forward. So then Paul squats back down on his heels, looking at the fissure. And he's thinking, all right, so he's like, if we can immobilize a small area, we could dig down, we can find it. Water could do that, but we don't have enough water. And he's like, wait, foam. And Jessica's just watching all of him do this. And then he goes, well, the spice is highly alkaline. I can smell it over there. We have a paracompass. Its power pack is acid-based. And this is where Jessica's like, well, then all you would need is water, and you could make some foam out of this. Paul goes and like, puts the plan into action, goes get the spice, um, and then he removes the compass face from the paracompass, and he takes all the parts out, so it's just the empty dish, and then he spits into the compartment. And then with the knife, he cuts open the power pack. 
and the water then foams slightly and then he puts the spice onto it and it starts to make this foam then come out. Gross. Paul aimed at the slope and it spread like a slow dike there and he began kicking away the sand. And Jessica right, right below him says like, how can I help? And Paul says, well, come here and dig. We need to go three meters to go near the thing. So she starts digging. She's digging down the hole. She's digging foam, more and more foam. Keeps coming out. So it's like making the wall kind of holding out the sand from coming in. And we're digging and digging until they hit the floor, the basin where we're at. But there's no pack yet. Paul thinks, could I have miscalculated? I'm the one who panicked, panicked originally and caused this mistake. Has that warped my ability? I think it's a good we should stop and pause that like uh, you are not defined by your mistakes and you can make more mistakes because of your mistake. But if you recognize you've made a mistake, you can stop. Yeah. And you can make more mistakes because of your reaction to your mistake, which is like a slippery slope because then you're just going to keep making mistakes because you're going to keep reacting. I think, yeah, this is what the, if there was a moral to the story in this chapter, it's that one. Because even Paul, who has this prescient ability that is unlike any other in the universe, um, if you can get, you can still get caught up emotionally. And if you react wrong, continue to react wrong, you will continue to make mistakes. Um, So Paul, or sorry, Jessica straightened in the hole, rubbed her foam stained hand across her cheek. She, her eyes meet Paul's, like, what do we do now? And then Paul goes, the upper face, gently now. He added a little bit more spice to the container, and the foam came out around Jessica's hands, and she began to cut the vertical face of the upward slant of the hole. As her, on her second pass around, her hands encountered something hard. Slowly, she worked out the length of the strap with a plastic buckle. Don't move anymore, Paul said, his voice almost a whisper. We're out of foam. Okay, okay. <laughs> Visually, help me out here because <laughs> I was having a hard time picturing what's actually happening. They're like, they're digging and there's foam and the foam is like holding the sand up. But like, what does this look like? You know what I mean? Like any, at least like, what are you picturing it? Because it's like, I'm picturing... They're digging kind of like a hole straight down, but it's on like a sloped bit of sand. So it's like kind of. It's like down and to the right. And then as they, you know how like then when they had the suspensors with the, um, or the static compression. Yeah. They're kind of mimicking that same thing when they're trying to get into the silt tent. We're trying to do that same thing, but with foam. Okay. Okay. So only on one side, not both sides. Yeah. So they're going, if there's a, a diagonal line of this sand, they're going like into it kind of. Yes. Perpendicular to the surface of this mound of sand. Wow. That was a really good descriptive term. If you're watching on YouTube, you could see Evan just making all these wild oh, arm gestures trying to describe this thing. I'm trying to, I'm trying to like, be i'm trying to like say what i'm doing because i'm just such a visual person and i'm like oh yeah there's people that just listen to us and like 
me like moving my arms around like a crazy person makes no sense to them <laughs> but th- this this scene is kind of hard to visualize and if i were a movie director i would cut it it's like this is too much we'll yeah. just move on um but yeah so but then but she's also they've come to the bottom of this place so she's standing on rock and then she's digging now up so she was digging diagonally right perpendicular into the um dune or the sand and now it's held up by foam but now she's digging up almost to the foam and now the foam's coming around her okay but now she's stuck in the hole she's in the hole and okay this is so hard to like picture because where's where's paul uh probably right next to her with the foam he's like as she's digging he's coming right behind her like putting up the layer of foam okay they're both they're both in the hole kind of working their way towards the rock wall right okay that is that's making a little more sense yeah um but now we're out of foam but we have a hand on the strap of the pack so Paul throws down the paracompass because it's pretty much useless. Now he kind of deconstructed it. Um, Give me your other hand. Now, listen carefully. I'm going to pull you to the side and downhill. Don't let go of the strap. We won't get much more spill from the top. The slope has stabilized itself. All I'm going to do is aim to keep your face and head free of the sand. Once the hole is filled, we can dig you out and pull up the pack. So they're going to like, in in any movement is going to cause another avalanche. So he's trying to do as minimum as possible, as long as we can keep her her neck above and at one shoulder that he's holding on to, it should be good. So with the big one, two, three, he yanks her forward. The sand comes down and, and she's got one hand on strap and it's probably like in an awkward position now. She's strained and like pulled in different directions. And she even says her shoulder starts to hurt yeah. because of this, but she still has a strap. Right. So Paul gets out of the hole and pulls her out as he's doing it just enough so that she's buried like right. She's one arm and her head out of the. Yeah. So they start to like dig her out, find her arm, find the pack. So they're both carrying one strap and then they slowly pull it up, trying not to break it because if it breaks and the strap rips, that would, that would suck. So they pull it up real slowly until it comes up and then he buries her out and then they both kind of sitting there like, oh, we got it. And she's got foam all over her <laughs> during this. It's like bright green foam and just looks like a mess. So as they're sitting there, Paul looks at his mother. Foam stained her face, her robe. Sand was caked to her where the foam had dried. She looked as though she had been a target for balls of wet green sand. <laughs> you look a mess, he said. You're not so pretty yourself, she said. And they both start to laugh. Which I think is a good, you need a comedic tension in this because they, they've just been through a lot. Even this one night you had like the war you had the you started in a storm you had an encounter with the worm you lost the pack you almost you know your your brother your mother was buried alive it's been it's been a long night Hmm. but then paul gets critical that shouldn't have happened 
I was careless. She shrugged, feeling the cake sand fall away from her room. I'll put up the tent. You know what I pictured that like shrug being like, uh, you know, this is, this is kind of a random reference to like our usual references, but like, you know, the grandma from Moana. (laughs) (laughs) You just go, okay. (laughs) You know, (laughs) which is funny, but she's going to, she's going to bring this back up again. At the end of the chapter, she's going to use that line against him. Right. But yeah, it's the kind of like, we're alive. Why do we, we should not be critical of ourselves at the moment. We survived. Um, but of course, Paul straight away on to the next thing. He says, I'll put up the tent. You better slip out of the robe and shake it out. He turned away, taking the pack. Jessica nodded, suddenly too tired to answer. And then Paul, hey, there's anchor holes in the rock. Someone's been here. Wow, I did not picture him as like giddy excited as you just that was some weird voice acting there again. Hey, look, somebody could I mean, I thought it was a little bit of good news. They've had a bunch of rough news coming up to this. They needed a little bit of good news. I pictured them all all uh Timothy Chalamet, stoic and like there are anchor holes in this rock. Someone has been here. You know? That's probably the way they're gonna do it. <laughs> Um, so Paul puts the tent up, right? Because it's, and of course, Jessica's like, hey, this would actually be a pretty good place to tent. It's really close to where you can jump out right. into the open sand to make the crossing. So, of course, this would be there. Um, and this is where Paul says, this is the feeling of a Fremen place. Like we are in Fremen territory. Uh, Jessica asks, are we certain the Fremen will be friendly? Kinds promised their help, Paul said. But then Jessica thinks, there's desperation in the people of the desert. I felt some of it myself today. Desperate people might kill us for our water. Uh, I don't know how right she is in thinking that, though. You know, because... The Fremen that we met was, you know, that that guy. I don't think we ever got a name for him, but he was like... Yeah, nameless Fremen, dude. Mm, you don't have water. If you had water, you'd be all right. And they're like chilled out. It was like, oh, yeah, those crazy uh, Sardaukar assassin badass people. We love killing those guys, <laughs> you know? And there didn't seem to be a hell of a lot of desperation. I think she's like making an assumption I think she's overwhelmed by her environment. Right. Which it would be overwhelming. Like the moment when Paul spit into the paracompass, um, like the birds like started flocking above. Like everything can sense water. Right. That's not necessarily desperation as much as it is like knowing your needs. You know? Yes. Desert power. Desert power. And I think the whole environment, it's, yeah, it really is about being um, acclimated to your environment. And they're still trying to understand a lot of it. Right. Which is funny because she immediately closes her eyes in this and then goes to a memory from Caladan when they were on a vacation trip before Paul was born. 
And you know, she pictures all this beautiful lush rest that's now there. And now all of that is gone. Mm. She opened her eyes to the desert stillness. It was that silence again, silence and stillness, to the mounting warmth of the day. Restless heat devils were beginning to set the air a quiver out on the open sand. The other rock face across from them was a thing seen through cheap glass. The sand spill spread its brief curtain around the end of the open fissure. The sand hissed down, loosed by puffs of the morning breeze by the hawks that were beginning to lift away from the cliff top. The sand fall was gone. She heard, but she still heard hissing. It grew louder. The sound once heard was never forgotten. Worm, Paul whispered. It came from their right, along with an uncaring majesty that could not be ignored. I love that uncaring majesty. This thing is so huge. You are so small and pointless in comparison to this thing. Yeah. Like it, it, it doesn't bother with you because you don't matter. Um, a twisting burrow mound of sands cuts through the dunes within their field of vision. The mound lifted in the front, dusting away like a bow wave in the water. And then it was gone, horsing off to the left. And then they're still stuck on how big these things are. I've seen space frigates that were smaller, Paul whispered. Jessica nodded, continuing to stare out across the desert. And then Jessica, something switches in her. Yeah. She realizes that Paul was sloppy today. It's the end of the day. Before we go to bed, we need to make sure you're not sloppy. And and I think this is her first, like she's been in mom mode before, but she's not been in teacher mode yet. This is probably the first time she can hit teacher mode again because she saw a flaw. Mm -hmm. And so she says, when we've rested, we should continue your lessons. Paul suddenly suppressed a sudden anger and said, mom, don't you think we could do without today? You panicked. She said. You know your mind and Bendu nervature perhaps better than I do, but you've much to learn about your Pranu Bindu mas- mus- musculature. The body does things of itself sometimes. Paul, and I can teach you about this. You must learn to control every muscle, every fiber of your body. You need a review of the hands. We'll start with finger muscles, palm tendons, tips, tip sensitivity. She turned away. Come into the tent now. So this is a a common practice. This is your fundamentals for the B'nai Jesuit. You're going back to the fundamentals. Yeah. Find all the muscles in your hands, all the nerve endings in your hands, and and manipulate them. All of them. So you can learn all of them. Yeah. He flexed the fingers on his left hand, watching her crawl to the sphincter valve, knowing that he could not deflect her from this determination, that he must agree. Mom power. Whatever has been done to me, I've been, par- I've been party to it. He thought, 
Because remember in the tent when he had that uh, emotional breakdown, he was like, you did this to me. The Bene Gesserit did this to me. I'm a freak of nature. And now he's like, well, I've definitely signed up to be a freak of nature. I didn't say no. Right. So he's kind of accepting his own responsibility. Review of the hand. He looked at his hand. How inadequate it appeared when measured against such creatures as the worm. And that ends chapter 27. There it is. I mean, I love that. I love this, the scale of the worm. We get a worm in the beginning and a worm at the end and a bunch of foam in the middle. Uh, is this weird? Yeah. But you see the... I like Jessica's uh, teacher moment where like she has this like crazy powerful son who's like she's she's afraid of him earlier in the chapter and then um seeing him like make a mistake and then get down on himself because of the mistake she was like oh there's still a boy in there and he's his training isn't done yet you know regardless of what crazy mystical whatever experience he's had like he still needs more training before he can like fully be this Lazan al-Gaib crazy person, you know? I mean, if they're going to survive out here in the desert, they have to keep going and they have to keep training because who knows what's out there. Right. It's like, and she, her attitude is kind of like, well, you know what? You might be some Quizwad, Quizwad, Sadarak, whatever, but uh, you still sloppy boy. So get in the tent. We're going to practice. Right. Going over all of the little things in your hands to go over this. Yeah. I just love how this chapter is. Um, it is when you enter into the desert, you cannot stop. Yeah. You stop when you, when the sun is up, but as soon as the sun goes down, it's a, it's go, go, go. Yeah. Nothing stops you. No fear stops you. Nothing. I think the first time I read this chapter where she gets buried, um, in my head, I started saying the litany against fear. Cause that is so scary. Yeah, like Paul drops his pack, everything like completely loses it. It's like holy cow! Yeah, but gets her out. Camped now. We've seen, I've seen, we've seen three worms so far. Right. I wonder when we're gonna see another one. I don't know. Bum, bum, bum. All right. I think I think a, a, a cool to tie an old saying that might be cliche might not be um to like wrap this little chapter up in a bow is the whole idea of if you're going through hell keep going just keep going and with that please uh send us your favorite moment of the podcast tell us your favorite moment um in dune at twitter reading dune at reading dune or email us reading dune at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you And remember, please, as always, stay spicy.